0: Today, we announced the takedown of the criminal online hacking forum known as Dark first
1: In 2015, law enforcement officials from 20 different countries came together in a rare show of unity. And they did something that at the time was kind of extraordinary. They dismantled a dark web marketplace.
0: Dark Code represented one of the gravest threats to the integrity of data on computers in the United allegedly States, allegedly
1: the most renowned English-language malware form in the they world. The
0: dark code and its
2: users deal in fraud, extortion, and money laundering. Malware, botnets, and even credit card information stolen during exploits. Dark code has been deemed,
0: quote, the best malware marketplace on the web, close quote.
1: A malware marketplace is just like it sounds. It's like a local grocery store, except instead of hot dogs and cereal, it sells hacks. And there was a real market for them, because in the early days of hacking, you actually needed skills to crack into a server. Pre-packaged off-the-shelf exploits appeared later in places like these dark web marketplaces. Most of these markets conducted their business in Russian. English speakers on the dark web were out of luck until the creation of Dark Code which eventually became the go-to place to pick up whatever you needed to commit a whole host of cyber crimes. And while Dark Code seemed to end in a blaze of glory with dozens of arrests, its beginnings were humble, some might say improbable. And for that, you need to go to Western Kentucky, to the small town of Smithland.
0: It is the only county in the state of Kentucky without a stoplight.
1: Ryan Green, one of the founders of Dark Code.
0: We do, however, have a caution light, but there is no actual red, green, yellow stoplights in the entire county.
1: The story of Dark Code's rise and fall is a kind of fable for how cybercrime and hackers more generally have evolved. It begins as a kind of boy meets computer, boy loves computer narrative, and then gets progressively darker. And it's not a story Ryan Greene ever expected he'd be a part of. So was this just a fun thing in your mind, or was it sort of like a a little bit that you felt powerful?
0: It was a fun thing, it was a powerful thing, and it was a challenge. It was a challenge until it was over, and then it was on to the next challenge, which is how things really spiraled out of control.
1: So why don't you tell me about that? Well? I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, a deep dive into a part of the cyber world that has been in the shadows for years, the dark web marketplace. We look at how dark code started, how it died, and how, against all odds, it came back. Stay with us.
2: If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she? And will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
1: Ryan Green spent most of his childhood on Cemetery Hill in Smithland. It was an old fort from the Civil War, situated right next to the river.
0: You know, here we are, kids riding dirt bikes in it and playing fake war and doing things like that. You you didn't have cell phones, but back then you didn't really call friends. You kind of just showed up. Everybody knew where everybody lived or where the meat spots were and that kind of thing.
1: Ryan's first job was at his dad's gas station, just gas pumps, a desk, and a chair. They sold candy bars too. And he might have had a typical Smithland existence had his grandfather not moved in next door when Ryan was in middle school.
0: We got into computers. and So he bought this old computer, it was a Commodore 64.
1: It was a big beige box, eight bits, external floppy drive, ports for two joysticks, and a glowing green screen.
0: I remember learning BASIC and then I learned QBASIC.
1: Ryan was the only person he knew in Smithland with a home computer. The only person he knew who thought that computers really mattered at all.
0: You have your naysayers saying, oh, them computers, that's a joke and that's this. And especially in the area that I was from because it was so country and backwoods, it was, you know, farmers and was like, oh, we'll never need a computer. Um, But my grandfather, he was actually an engineer.
1: His grandpa started giving
0: him little computer challenges. He would set goals and say, okay, I want you to be able to do this. And and then I would, I would just be obsessed with it until I could do it, and then I'd take a little break.
1: From there, he'd write programs for simple games. He learned how to put things on flash drives. And by high school, as report cards started going online instead of on paper, Ryan became more entrepreneurial.
0: So I made a clone website of the school that looked like a portal to be able to log in and look at grades, and I would charge the kids so much money to use my portal to show their parents their grades.
1: You'd make like a fake report card and everything else for them?
0: Yeah, give them all A's or whatever they wanted, make it realistic. Give them some, some of them just wanted to be realistic and get C's and B's, you know?
1: <laughs> all of this computer uh, stuff that Ryan had done in secret was starting to become cool. Which, of course, just made him want to do more of it. Like the time Ryan's computer got infected by a virus. It was a computer virus making the rounds at the time called ICE 9, and it was helping crash computers everywhere.
0: Then I was like, okay, well, what is a virus? What is a computer virus that these people keep talking about? What do people gain from this? So then I had all kinds of bells and whistles going off in my head.
1: So instead of trying to get rid of the virus, Ryan keeps inviting it in.
0: I am infecting myself with this virus over, and over, and over.
1: He watches what it did to his computer, all the while taking very careful notes.
0: Like what it's modifying, how it's doing it.
1: So you were like reverse engineering it?
0: I was reverse engineering it, and made my own payload.
1: And when it was done, Ryan had managed to create his very own virus, his very own version of Ice-9, a kind of Ice Ryan. And he began talking to other people who were creating new computer viruses and using them to crack into computers, just like him.
0: Who who knew there were just other people like me out there? And and that's when things really started to turn up.
1: Ryan eventually stumbled into what were essentially the back rooms of the hacking world. He found a channel where he could download music and another that offered first-run movies, things like The Fast and the Furious. And did anybody know you had this sort of secret hacker life?
0: I mean, my parents probably had an idea. Like, my dad thought it was awesome getting the movies and everything. He'd be like, oh, is it it downloaded yet? When can we watch it? (laughs) And, you know, I'd always hear from my mom, you better not be doing illegal stuff. I'm like, I think she knew I was doing illegal stuff, but was hoping I wasn't.
1: Ryan was becoming a great hacker among an online community of equals.
0: Your people that really knew what was going on and your skilled people, they all stuck together, per se, and shared code snippets and, and things like that.
1: Which drew Ryan and his fellow coders to one of their most famous projects, something called the Butterfly Bod. They created a giant army of computers infected with a malware known as mariposa, butterfly in Spanish.
0: It was a whole new protocol that we all worked on. It was unlike anything, any other botnet or any other bot on the internet at this point.
1: And all you really need to know is that the butterfly malware could install itself on an uninfected PC, monitor its activities for passwords, bank credentials, and credit cards, and then whip through a network and adjoining networks like a virus infecting a city. The shady people who rented these bots of zombie computers weren't exactly skilled hackers. They were just budding cybercriminals, so they needed tech support, something like a butterfly bot help desk. And the online forum that hosted this tech support would, in a way, lead to Dark Code.
0: We all were like, "Man, you know, we could expand on this. This is a great idea, this and that." And that was when Dark Code was born.
1: To be clear, Ryan's rise in hacker circles isn't particularly unusual. Roman Sannikov used to investigate dark markets and cybercrime for the FBI, and he says he saw this all the time. Now he's head of cyber threat intelligence at TRM Labs, a blockchain intelligence company. They follow things like cryptocurrency. And he says dark code evolved just like most dark markets do. Initially, it was just a great place to swap code, and then it became something else entirely.
2: I think the market itself started to succumb to the temptation of turning into a shop. So from a place where individuals could just exchange ideas to a place where individuals could actually sell things that could be used for malicious purposes.
1: Sanakoff says dark markets allowed customers who didn't know how to code to get into cybercrime just by throwing around piles of cash
2: most of them are not going in and breaking into systems. What they're doing is they're buying that access. They're buying those vulnerabilities. They're buying those skeleton keys to that house or to that company. And this is where a lot of them make those first
1: connections. Dark Code wasn't an open marketplace. It was actually pretty security conscious. To meet people like Ryan required a personal introduction, someone to vouch for you. The Dark Code marketplace had different levels of access. And to get into the inner sanctum with all the great coders you had to prove yourself. You had to show that you could create exploits like
0: we got a DDoS panel we have Helios We've got Helios with different exploits put in there. We got a...
1: Those file names Ryan is reading, it's a list that comprised the little beating heart of the dark code marketplace in its infancy. Ryan still has them even after all these years.
0: HTTP exploit like thread it all works. Nightmare uh, we have uh, Crime Pack.
1: And has the public ever heard them listed like that before? Probably not. Crime Pack, Dollworks, Helios, these were all something called exploit kits, which is essentially the Swiss Army knife of hacking. If you're trying to break into a network, an exploit package gives you options. If one set of coding instructions doesn't work, it just cycles through the others until it finds the right one to break in. And as time went on, Dart Code's reputation for good packages started to grow, and its customer base started to change. They weren't just English language speakers anymore. Dart Code had gone global. International buyers were lining up.
0: They would buy up everything the Russian syndicate, Chinese syndicate. They were willing to buy everything.
1: And Ryan sold them all this stuff under the code name UID0. UID0.
0: Um, that was. That was my dark code name. That was the name that I was using up until the end.
1: He stopped, he says, because all that took a dark turn. For the reason that a lot of things take a dark turn. For money. Hacks started getting harder because people were being more careful with their servers, and antivirus software was getting better. The easy money was drying up.
0: Well, back then, you might make about ten grand a week, something like that. Some days you might make less, some days you might make more. Um, depends on how you want to scale it. And then? One of the partners wanted to do more of the stuff that I didn't really want to get involved in.
1: Stuff like credit card fraud and malware, spyware, and things that felt downright dangerous.
0: There was plans on there, how to make remote detonated bombs and everything of the sorts and weird discussions.
1: This wasn't what Ryan had signed up for. He had already started a marketing company. He was doing some plumbing on the side. So his next decision was easy. He quit, though it turns out not quite soon enough. This is Click Here. Politics has never been stranger or more online,
2: which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's
1: all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. A little more than a year before that big dark code takedown we talked about before, Ryan Green got a call from the county attorney in Smithland, and he asked him to come to the courthouse.
0: And as I'm walking down through there, I get about halfway through. And I see like this group of guys in front of me, like come out of nowhere. And then I kind of turn around and there's a group of guys behind me and they start like closing in.
1: One of the men flashed a badge.
0: And he introduced himself as uh, being special agent FBI and that he had a warrant. And that at that moment, they were also searching my house And at that point, I was just like, holy shit.
1: The agents took him into a room and grilled him for hours. They wanted passwords, all his computers, all his cell phones. The county sheriff sat through the whole thing, shaking his head.
0: He was just mind blown at this point, like just completely, he's known me my whole life. And, you know, he says, I remember him saying, if I would have known all this, that you could do all this, I would have had you working right here for us.
1: Ryan eventually pleaded guilty to a charge related to spam, and he got two years probation and mandatory computer monitoring. And that might well have been the end of it, but for one thing, Dark Code didn't die. Like that scene in Cape Fear when Robert De Niro just keeps coming back. Dark Code did too. And it returned as something called Dark Code Reborn. All new administrators, none of the people Ryan worked with, but using the same name. But here's the thing. Typically, these newly rebooted sites don't do so well. Buyers are worried that they're just law enforcement honeypots or exit scams, which essentially are an occasion for someone to play on the brand, take your money, and then disappear. Dark Code Reborn even has a mission statement in which it promises to have consumer empathy and provide a good user experience. I mean, how much are we, how big is it? How much money is traveling through there? I mean, do we have any idea?
2: I don't have specific figures, but I would say it's in the millions. Uh, and uh, to me, that says again, that this is a legitimate uh, shop that-
1: Roman is- Sannikoff says everything points to Dark Code Reborn being the real deal. Not so much the hacker collective that the original Dark Code once was, But an active, thriving marketplace where you can buy anything from narcotics to malware to stolen credit card information.
2: Uh, And so if you have that combination where uh, a shop has existed for over a year and a half uh, and has had, you know, probably millions of dollars go through that shop, to me, that says that this is most likely uh, a legitimate criminal dark web shop.
1: So these dark web marketplaces have found a place in the cyber criminal ecosystem. They're the malicious code supermarket where new hackers can get their start, which means even though dark code is behind him, Ryan Green and the people who started it may have a lot to answer for. Do you feel like you help contribute to what we're dealing with now in terms of ransomware and malware?
0: Unfortunately, yes, and I live with that every day. I actually just had this discussion. You know, I have to live with knowing that stuff that I pioneered affects millions of people on a daily basis. And I, I'm a little naive for not looking at all angles of it. And, and I kind of had the mentality of, well, it's, it's kind of like a gun or a hammer, even some people might take a hammer and build a house. Some people might take a hammer and hit someone in the head, but it is a very common thought that I have is about how many people on a mass scale that I've been Responsible in some way for being hurt.
1: With dark code behind him, Ryan has turned to something that, ironically, feels a little less messy.
0: Plumbing was my original passion. As as you uh, as you know, um, I was a plumber throughout the entire time that I was a hacker. But I find peace in plumbing.
1: So, so do you think you identify more as a plumber or a hacker?
0: Oh, definitely an ex-hacker.
1: And you could say
0: Ryan's two worlds fused. I have wrote my own software, and I literally have figured out how to reverse engineer all the other plumbing companies.
1: Ryan hasn't moved completely away from computer coding. He designed an algorithm so that the company he works for can figure out how much his competitors will bid on any given project.
0: So I can make sure I come in below them. So we have grown the company tenfold in the last two years from three plumbers basically to about 30 plumbers in two years' time.
1: And by the way, that algorithm is legal. A new chapter for an ex-hacker. And finally, every week we run across stories we think demand a second look. Often they're just little tidbits that the Click Here team likes to call Get Smart. And this week, someone drew our attention to a particular example of how Russia is running a misinformation campaign in Ukraine. You may have heard about it. Allegedly, Russia hired actors, dressed them up as Ukrainian soldiers and mourners, and had intended to put together a video that made it look like the soldiers had killed innocent Russians in a massacre. The alleged attack would be used as a pretext for an invasion. At first, that sounded crazy to us. But then Nina Jankowicz, who studies Russian disinformation campaigns at the Wilson Center in D.C., told us that this was nothing new. this is from a Russian state television broadcast in 2014. And the news anchor is introducing a story about a woman who told Russian news crews that she had witnessed Ukrainian soldiers torturing a young boy and then killing his mother. They took a three-year-old boy, she sang, and crucified him like Jesus. The story went viral. The only problem was it wasn't true. And
0: that footage was played on Russian state TV, to much fanfare, and later debunked, and it was found out that this woman was indeed an actress.
1: It all fell apart when people realized that the woman wasn't the innocent Ukrainian refugee she pretended to be. So now...
0: The idea that they might stage a scene to look like a genocide and hire people to play mourners, it's, it's not beyond the pale for me.
1: The U.S. press corps has been skeptical that the latest video even exists, Pachankiewicz says that the U.S. decision to talk about all this is part of a Biden administration strategy to defang Russia's disinformation efforts. U.S. officials are banking that releasing what would traditionally have been very closely guarded intelligence narrows Russia's ability to twist the narrative.
0: I think the idea here is to take the wind out of Russia's sails and say, well, you can't use that silly video anymore. And we'll never know, really, if that had come to pass or not, um, if they don't use it. Because a win is them doing nothing.
1: She says Russia's propaganda machine is constantly adapting. And it's becoming more and more secretive. Now Moscow launders lies through trusted third parties and has moved into Facebook groups and private chats. The theme of this latest campaign is the same as the earlier one. Essentially, Ukraine isn't a victim, they say. Ukraine is the aggressor. Maria Zolkina is a political analyst with the Democratic Initiatives Foundation. She's based in Ukraine and sees this Russian disinformation up close. After the past eight years, though, she believes Ukrainians are wise to Russia's efforts.
2: In comparison to, I would say, to the majority of European countries, we have already had an experience how to tackle it and how to be able, you know, not to enable this propaganda spread around Ukraine.
1: What's clear is even before any Russian troops cross the border, the disinformation war is well underway. And here are some cyber and intelligence headlines from the past week. The San Francisco 49ers confirmed to the record that they'd been hacked shortly before the Super Bowl. Had they made it to the big game, the hack could have been devastated since it would have made game prep pretty difficult. The BlackBite ransomware gang is thought to have been behind the attack. They're one of the smaller ransomware operators active today, and they run a ransomware-as-a-service model. Speaking of ransomware, that was an incredibly lucrative cybercrime last year. A new report from Chainalysis says victims paid more than $600 million in cryptocurrency to unlock systems frozen by ransomware attacks. The Conte ransomware gang accounted for nearly one-third of those payments. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission says romance scams blossomed in 2021. The FTC's Consumer Sentinel Network, which collects reports about identity theft and other schemes, found that Americans lost nearly $550 million to romance scams last year. That's up from about 300 million in 2020 and 200 million the year before that. The FTC said that more than a third of the incidents reported to them began with an affectionate message received on Facebook or Instagram. Scammers often exchange messages with a victim for months to build trust before they invent tales of woe or a financial crisis that gets the victim to transfer money to them. And finally, The U.S. Department of Justice seized more than 94,000 Bitcoin assets last week and arrested a New York couple accused of trying to launder roughly $3.6 billion in funds stolen from a cryptocurrency exchange in 2016. The couple, Ilya Lichtenstein and his wife, Heather Morgan, are accused of trying to launder the money with more than 2,000 separate transactions. They allegedly set up online accounts using fictitious names, used computer programs to automate transactions, and deposited the stolen funds into darknet markets. Today's episode was produced by Will Jarvis and Sean Powers. It was edited by Karen Duffin, with fact-checking by Darren Akram. Ben Levingston composed our theme and original music for the episode, and we had additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Click Here is a production of The Record Media. Thanks again to Ryan Green.
0: You could ask me a million questions I've talked forever.
1: As well as Shardul Desai and Roman Sanakoff. And we want to hear from you. So please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. And connect with us by email. Click here at RecordedFuture.com or on our website at ClickHereShow.com. I'm Dina Temple Raston. We'll be back on Tuesday.
2: Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here, then check out our sister publication, The Record from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to therecord.media.